Hello and welcome to the Gentleman's Journal podcast, our fortnightly discussion all about success, modern business and the lives of entrepreneurs. Our guest on today's episode is John Foley, the founder and CEO of Peloton, the at-home exercise company. John started out working in a candy factory before a meandering career took him to Silicon Valley, the record industry, Barnes & Noble and beyond. And at 40, he decided he'd like to start selling exercise bikes that let you attend spin classes whenever and wherever you wanted. Almost everyone told him it was a terrible idea. But after several years of sheer grit and a few slightly wonky prototypes, the company is now a huge global success, of course. It IPO'd last year and has been one of the few real success stories of the coronavirus pandemic, as more and more of us take to exercising at home. In this episode... John talks to us about the atmosphere in Silicon Valley during the dot-com boom, about his love for Skittles, the sweets, not the toys, I suppose, about the demise of Kickstarter campaigns, and about his hatred for the phrase chillax. Enjoy. And chillax, actually. Sorry, John. But before we begin, I'd love to tell you about the Clubhouse, a new kind of private members club brought to you by Gentleman's Journal. Clubhouse members get two bumper issues of Gentleman's Journal magazine delivered straight to their door, full of all those invaluable insights from the worlds of entrepreneurship, style, politics and culture that you'd expect, as well as exclusive deals with a range of partner brands, restaurants and hotels, not to mention some lovely invitations to some very exciting events across the year. In fact, our podcast listeners, which is you... Now get 20% off a Clubhouse annual membership, meaning you'll get the full Gentleman's Journal experience for just under £48 a year, which sounds a bit like a bargain to me. Just enter the code POD20 at thegentlemansjournal.com slash club. That's P-O-D-20 at thegentlemansjournal.com slash club. Right, on with the podcast. We're very glad to have you here on the Gentleman's Journal podcast. Thank you, Joe. And I wonder, I want to start off with a question everyone asks on every podcast now. How have you found the last few months in this very odd new world we find ourselves in? Yeah, I've, I've found it uh, incredible on the family front. I mean, uh, just uh, I, have a, I have a 12-year-old son and a nine-year-old daughter and uh, spending every waking minute with them, um, whether it's sitting side by side and I'm working and they're doing their schooling or, you know, cooking bacon and and eggs in the morning, which I seldom have done pre-COVID. So the family time is just incredible just being together. Uh, But on the flip side, that's come out of the professional relationships where it's just really hard to have great relationships on video um, versus being in the office uh, every day. So luckily, our senior leadership team was uh, was pretty solid and we haven't added too many new people, but there's a few new people and it really is hard to have a fantastic relationship developed uh, over video. So um, family's good and the, the professional side is, is kind of suffering um, yeah. in, in general. Have there been any kind of odd positives to come out of this kind of virtual conferencing and all this being spread out around the world. Is there anything you found that's actually got more efficient or better? Yeah, for sure. Uh, I can pop into meetings, uh, you know, a sales meeting or a content meeting or a manufacturing meeting with people all around the world. And I pop in one and then 15 minutes later, I pop in the next and say hi in a way that in a physical world, you, you couldn't do that. So uh, for sure, there are some efficiencies, especially with a global company. Uh, I feel like I'm, uh, while I'm not connecting as much with my colleagues in New York, because I don't go into the office, I'm probably connecting more with my colleagues around the world. And this has naturally been a good period for Peloton. While it's kind of, it must be an odd feeling because while everyone else is struggling a bit and some companies are really, really in trouble, Peloton seems like a company built for lockdown living and kind of remote exercise you can't have predicted that but but how do you feel about this new uptick that you must have seen uh, yeah as a peloton shareholder i feel pretty good about it to be honest <laughs> <laughs> but uh, you're, you're 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 right uh to to think um it, it is kind of awkward and and we have uh, in our first earnings call in, in covid which was uh a couple months ago 
we did have to show a, a lot of humility because uh, we we do have to understand the global context of of job loss and and um, displacement and uh, you know health challenges and uh, economic challenges and there's a, there's a lot of people suffering and, and struggling um, so we uh, we have to understand um, uh, the the broader context of of the COVID world but certainly with respect to at home fitness uh, there is wind in our sail uh, no doubt and if I understand right mostly you kind of you would be seeing seeing a bit of a tail off now as it goes into summer and people get outside more as far as sales and signups go how did you kind of gear yourself up for an uptick when you weren't ever expecting one the way we geared up for it joe is that we um plan to be one of the great companies uh, of the next couple decades and so we are so ambitious that we we've doubled the company every year since inception and we continue to expect doubling it. Mm-hmm. So we've been really investing in supply chain and manufacturing and logistics and stores and, and growth, um, uh, understanding that we were going to be growing for uh, years and years to come. So luckily our ambition uh, played well going into COVID. So we were more or less ready for, for the growth. I like the fact that you say you, you're going to be what was the phrase you used? One of the great companies of the next couple of decades. I like that. That's confidence. <laughs> I, I want to start right at the back at the start of your career because I'm fascinated by your journey because more than any entrepreneur I've spoken to in a long time, you have shuttlecocked around the place and, and done almost everything. And I think your first job was in candy or sweets, as we'd say over here in the UK. Are you saying I've been adrift, Joe? Is that, is that, is that <laughs> Well, I'm saying to... there's been a nice bit of natural drift something I think we all need. You've zigzagged. Perhaps that's another way to say it. But you used to make Skittles. I'm a journeyman. You're a journeyman. Yes. Yeah. I, I, uh, we, I started my career, yes, in, in the candy manufacturing uh, world. Uh, actually, a multinational that you know uh, over there in the UK is FM Foods. Yeah. Um, over here, it's called Eminem Mars. But it's the global confection uh, company owned by the Mars family. It's a private company. And I worked in one of their manufacturing plants in Waco, Texas, yeah. where uh, from that plant, we made 6 million Snicker bars a day, uh, which is just wild to think of the scale of how much candy is consumed in the world. But uh, yeah. I, I worked primarily on the Skittles and Starburst line. How does making the sausage, so to speak, how does that change your relationship with, with confected foods? Do you still get time for Skittles anymore or not? I don't. Uh, Skittles are generally, I think, for younger folks. I, okay. I've, I've evolved into the chocolates and the, and the Reese's and, and Snickers world. But uh, my kids, uh, like most nine and twelve year olds, uh, love love Skittles and Starburst um, a lot. <laughs> yeah, they're pretty good. And you you were doing that to pay your way through college. That's right. You were a uh, a structural engineer, an industrial engineer. That's right, exactly. Which is so, uh, which is a pretty light engineering lift, to be honest. I wish I would have been an electrical engineer, okay. uh, get a little more street cred in the valley. But uh, no, I was an industrial engineer, which is um, mostly study efficiencies of systems. Uh, which just the discipline of there has served me well through my career, to be honest. Most of the engineers I knew at university were very sensible, diligent, pleasant, hardworking young men. Does that sum sum you up at that age? Is that fair? Uh, in between smashing beer cans against my forehead. Um, yes, that would be, uh, <laughs> um, I, I worked hard and play hard. You've got to have both. That's right. That's right. Balance is everything. So then you went over to LA to the tech scene in the late nineties, which was the kind of dot-com boom, which for someone who was a child then and vaguely remembers the kind of hype and the buzz has always fascinated me. But what, what was, what was the atmosphere like then? Can you sum up the kind of characters and the energy? And I don't know, the kind of, I guess, a cult mentality in some of the companies. What was it like? It was intoxicating in its excitement. Um, the, the, the early days, I guess I, uh, I was interviewing in late 96, and I think I started in January of 97, but uh, it was the early days of the internet. And uh, to your question, Joe, the really powerful thing about it was the quality of people that were migrating into yeah. that space. And they were just... It was a self-selecting, super dynamic, super risk-taking, um, super generally pretty super smart. I mean, a lot of these kids were really overeducated, all from all the best schools. So, for me, it was a little intimidating just the the quality of people, but uh, it was also fun to try and keep up and uh, and be a part. But yeah, it was a very special time in in technology. It was those early days of the internet. Of course. Was was there a sense that that a bust was coming or did everyone think it was just up and up forever? 
Yeah, you thought it was up and up forever. I mean, you, you definitely saw it um, as the future. Um, you think about Amazon. I mean, Amazon in 1999 uh, was the future. Um, it, it bust in 2001 like, like everyone else, but it didn't mean it wasn't the future. I mean, yeah. it, it just... Uh, the the irrational exuberance was the term uh, was just out in front of the of the financials. So there was an adjustment or correction, but it was still you know technology disruption and and access to information and the internet was the future as we've seen and everybody knew it. It's just um, there was there was a little bit of a bubble uh, to your point. Of course. And have you ever seen echoes of that in other movements? That kind of same exuberance and that over i don't know overvaluation are you now wary of of impending busts well you definitely look at bitcoin uh and try and figure out yeah. um you know is, is the hype or is the reality of where that industry is or that currency is um and it's totally over my intellectual pay grade to, to even opine on on whether whether it is or not but um you know some people compare that excitement uh to the early days of the internet for sure and then you went back to school. You went to Harvard Business School. Why? Why? That's why right. that decision at that point? Uh, one, because I got in. Uh, <laughs> it's a pretty minor miracle uh, that uh, they let me in. Um, but uh, most of the people at City Search, um, uh, which was the internet company, the dot com, it was a local city guide. Uh, made our way over to London um, uh, through a partnership. Um, with uh, timeout, yeah, timeout. Yeah. Um, but uh, almost all the folks at City Search were really, like I said, uh, you know, Ivy League educated, and most of them had bu- uh, business school degrees. So it was just kind of the the thing to do. And coming from Key Largo, Florida, um, and, and Georgia Tech and Waco, Texas, like I had, I definitely benefited from um, the confidence I got going to Harvard Business School and, and learning and being exposed to a lot more. I was a pretty green, um, naive, um, yeah. undereducated, underexposed 28-year-old. And so Harvard Business School meant a lot to uh, to my trajectory. And I suppose you mean that in contrast with maybe people who grew up in New York or in kind of big coastal towns. That's right. My, my kids are going to school in Manhattan at the uh, a couple of these fancy private schools. And just their access to how the world works yeah. is, you know, geometrically above where, where I came from and what I was exposed to, for sure. Is there something that you brought that those Manhattanites can bring? Does kind of Waco, Texas give you a different perspective on things, maybe? I think so. I think, uh, you know, you hear about grit and, uh, you know, yeah. certainly uh, I was a hard worker. Um, you know, my first three years I worked at McDonald's from 14 to 17. And I just had a, uh, I, I think, a more um, down to earth, more real um, approach to an, an understanding of, of how the world works. And and then there was just the pure hunger. I was I was yeah. much hungrier than someone who came from affluence or access or, you know, I was I had to prove myself. And so that um, just from an ego perspective, I, I was um, hungrier than most. And then in another kind of sideways move, you went to the music industry after that. That's right. You seem to be chasing industries that are under threat. <laughs> you seem to be you've got an eye for for an impending bust. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I will say I went to the music industry. I got a job with BMG Music, but I never started, Joe. I, I uh, To your point about the bust, it was 2001, and uh, the music industry was being decimated by digital downloads and Napster and uh, free streaming. So um, I, I wanted to work in the music industry, but I ended up not getting uh, getting there. How old were you at this point? Late 20s, early 30s? Yeah, early 30s. I think it was 30, uh, just turned 30. So you're... You're just turning 30 and you find yourself out of a job for a few months. How, do, how did you feel? And you've got, you know, you've racked up student debt at Harvard Business School. That's right. How was your confidence at that point? Uh, it was a little frustrating because, uh, and, and that's kind of the cliche with a lot of business school programs is uh, I, I went to business school and uh, I got out and I found myself interviewing for jobs that um, you know, I might not have taken two years prior, it, yeah. it didn't. You know, it's not a it's not an obvious you know accelerant to your career. Um, for a lot of people in a lot of different industries, it, it's actually takes you backwards. So you know, you got to approach business school pretty thoughtfully. 
Um, and yeah, I was uh, out of work um, and uh, it was a recession and uh, there was a couple tough months of just trying to figure out here I was a, you know, fancy newly minted Harvard Business School graduate. I thought it was the, the world is my oyster and uh, yeah. all of a sudden it was a, a rude awakening. Yeah. At that point, what would have been your dream scenario? If you were at 30 looking at John at 40, say, what would you be hoping he was doing? Um, I had, uh, I think on my, uh, Harvard business school, um, application, I said that I would like to be a vice president of technology in, in 15 years or, or, or something. Okay. So, um, I, my, my, my expectations of where I would end up in my career weren't, uh, weren't as high as they have become to, to be sure. <laughs> so let's talk about Peloton. When did you first get the itch to start your own thing? When did you start thinking maybe I can be a player on my own. Yeah, so I worked for a guy named Barry Diller, uh, who is a you know a, a media mogul and a, a visionary and incredibly successful, multi-billion-dollar guy who's uh, who's incredibly smart and incredibly celebrated. And he was uh, such a big personality, and he was so celebrated that um, if you work at IAC, every article that's written about IAC is uh, includes Barry Diller. It is it is they're part and parcel. They're one and the same. He is such a big uh, personality, and, and he founded the company. Um, that anything I did ended up being Barry Diller launches X, Y, and Z. And it was actually John Foley launched it, but the media was infatuated with Barry himself. And so it was Barry was doing everything at IAC. Um, and by the time I was approaching 40, I was, you know, wanting to be my own person. I, I didn't want to be a guy behind Barry Diller or yeah. a guy behind anybody. So I just, uh, and I'm not that ego driven, but, uh, at some point you kind of want to, you know, go out on your own and, and, you know, try and have some independence and, and have your own, um, your, your own story. And uh, so uh, I left IAC to go to Barnes & Noble, where a friend of mine, William Lynch, uh, had just taken over as a CEO. Uh, and back to your point, Joe, it was another uh, yeah. industry under siege. Um, and uh, as everyone knows at this point, books had been disrupted uh, once by e-commerce, mm. uh, by Amazon, and then the second time by digital uh, distribution or digital streaming to uh, to devices, uh, i.e. the Nook and the and the Kindle, and uh, so there was two steps of disruption in the in the book industry, and we were uh, right on the precipice of the second. And William uh, was a visionary and was helping Barnes and Noble become a leader in in the in the Nook and, and in the uh, the tablet space, and uh, they did a fantastic job for several years. But uh, competing with Amazon um, eventually proved too tough. So uh, I left and he left. Uh, and I'm happy to say that he, he then became the president of Peloton. And so he's joined me. But, um, but we both learned a lot about uh, how a, a hardware and software platform, which is a Nook or a Kindle, um, when you're holding it at home, you can press a button and get the book distributed via the internet. And by the way, you have infinite, not infinite, you have millions of books to choose from. Whereas if you go to the store, you know, there's only 100,000 titles in the bookstore, yeah. but on your Nook or your Kindle, there's 10 million choices. So it's better selection. It's better convenience because you didn't have to get in your car. It's better value because the books are slightly cheaper. Uh, and it's a fantastic experience. So we, we saw that um, in, in the book industry, um, and we took a lot of those foundations over to, uh, to Peloton uh, when we were conceiving the idea. So what was the spark then that made you think the place to apply all that might be fitness and it might be bikes specifically? What happened? So it was the perfect uh, nexus of, of two different things. Uh, it was my experience at Barnes & Noble and technology in general. And then my wife and I really loved boutique fitness. And we were going to these fancy, expensive boutique fitness uh, studios. Uh, and I loved, you know, the boot camps or the spin cycling or the cycling, uh, indoor cycling classes or yoga classes, all these instructor led group fitness classes. They're social, they're fun. There's a great instructor that uh, motivates you and inspires you. There's great music and it's efficient workout. It's fun. It's motivating. It's more effective than trying to go to the gym and throw some weights around or get on a treadmill. I just found, you know, in my late thirties that, going to the gym was super inefficient and going to these classes was 
was not only efficient, it was fun. Yeah. So it was just a, a, a much better experience, but it was, it was hard to get to them. It was expensive. Um, it was hard to get in the classes. Uh, and so I said, I, I think there's a better way. Right. And who, who did you first sound that idea out with? Who did you speak to about it? Yeah, so I, I called my uh, uh, my brother-in-law, and then this uh, my, my, one of my co-founders, Hisao Kushi, um, who's now our general counsel um, or our chief uh, legal officer, and um, and eventually Tom Cortezzi uh, and uh, Graham Stanton and Yoni Fang, some of my co-founders. But uh, I just started running it by um, not only my co-founders and, and my friends and, and some early money, including Chris Barkley and his dad, Byron Barkley. Uh, but I also started running it by my friends and saying, you know, what do you think of this? And, uh, I got enough reception, um, and enough interest that, uh, it, it got me excited. And what about the less positive reviews? What did people tell you that you didn't want to hear? Were there any people who thought it was a terrible idea at the start? Yeah, there were a lot of people, um, uh, mostly investors yeah. <laughs> who didn't want to invest. Yeah. But, uh, I mean, it was a hard business to start. Um, a lot of investors don't like uh, hardware companies at all mm. for all kinds of reasons. It's hard. You, have, you need manufacturing, you need inventory, you need a lot of capital, you need logistics. Uh, there's things that can go wrong. Um, unfortunately, I was raising money right after Instagram had sold for a billion dollars. <laughs> and everyone loved the idea of putting $750,000 into a company and 18 months later selling it for a billion dollars. That, that was what every, and, and you know, Snapchat was just coming out, I think. Um, and everyone loved that. Yeah. Here's an app, here's a piece of software, it explodes and you sell it for billions of dollars. And that's what venture capitalists were excited about at the time. And, um, and, and also I just, uh, I was hoping Google might invest at one point and uh google had just bought nest yeah and i don't know whether you've studied that one but uh i think the the leadership and the culture of the nest team going into google uh didn't work very well uh and so google soured on hardware investments at the time and and i think they're back on they're back interested in in hardware investments but there were a couple of years where they were went cold and and i was pitching them when they were cold but yeah, there were a lot of people that, that didn't like how vertically integrated we were we were proposing and, and, and how hard it was going to be. So, so what different versions did you go through? Did you think about having just the software, for example, that people could stream on their own bikes? Did you think about having a bike without a screen on it? I mean, how many different kind of piecemeal solutions did you come to? Yeah, we went through all of that, Joe. It's a good question. Uh, definitely, we, you know, for weeks and weeks tried to figure out, could we just be a software company? But we quickly did an inventory of all of the hardware that we could plug into. Mm. And uh, it, it's really kind of a, a dog's breakfast of, of bad hardware in the category that, that, that there was no sexy products yeah. pre-Peloton. So plugging into dopey old world fitness equipment just didn't seem awesome to us. Yeah. So we didn't do that. But we knew that we had to do the hardware and the software. Um, we knew it, we knew that software was going to be the differentiator and we, we were software guys. So that was foundational, but we quickly decided that we needed to be the hardware as well. Um, and then we were considering partnering on the content. We weren't convinced we had to be the content. So we approached you know, the other players in the space. Uh, and to be honest, I think egos got in the way of that, um, which was unfortunate um, because we were pretty low ego guys, or at least I thought we were, I think we are. Um, it was guys at the time. Uh, luckily now we're 50-50 men and women, but the, the, fir the first days were, were mostly guys in the room. Um, but uh, for sure, we, we didn't want it to be hard. We, we, we tried to think about what, what was the minimum, you know, you know, the term MVP, minimum viable yeah. product. What was the minimum viable product? What was the minimum amount of work we had to do to bring a product to market? And it, we very quickly realized it had to be hardware, software, and content in, in one of the most vertically integrated startups, you know, ever potentially. That's what I was going to ask. Is there any other startup? I can't think of one that's decided to do hardware, software, and then make the content to put on the software? I, I can't think of one either. I mean, well, uh, there is one actually, Joe. Um, 
Bloomberg. Right. Yeah. Uh, Terminals. Yeah, it's a private company, uh, so no one, it, we can't comp against it in the public markets. But it, it is, interestingly, one of the the parallels or the metaphors that um, a lot of people don't think about when they think about Peloton because yeah. they're not a consumer brand. But they do hardware and software, and they brought the content to uh, to the finance industry. And it's one of the great subscription companies of all time, and it's obviously a great brand, but uh, but a B two B brand. And uh, I think uh, Michael Bloomberg and his team uh, had to do a lot of the same heavy lifting that we had to do. Um, I don't know exactly whether they launched with all of the vertical integration, but they certainly quickly got into it. And it it has been an incredible competitive moat for for Bloomberg. I mean, it's obviously still king of the hill. Yeah, absolutely. And what about names then? Were there other names you went for before you arrived on Peloton or was that really the, the only contender? It was the only contender. Uh, the, the the deck I put together uh, that I first sent to Asal was, uh, I think it was uh, World Spin, right? <laughs> um, which was a which was a placeholder and clearly <laughs> clearly not as good. Yeah. Uh, but Peloton, uh, because of the social components that yeah. we knew we had to bring in the gamification and the social software and the networked information and the you know the social network and the your friends and the and the motivation from your friends and the high fives and all the uh, the, the video chat all we didn't want it to be lonely in your basement or in your home gym or in your in your bedroom on the bike or the treadmill so the social stuff was so uh, paramount to the thesis uh, that peloton not only was a great brandable fitness word um but it was also the idea that you're stronger together when there's other people with you. Yeah. You know, obviously when you're biking by yourself, you're fighting all the wind. When you're biking with your with, with a group, you're more efficient and it's more fun. Uh, and you go faster and further as a Peloton. And so it, it, it very quickly became um, uh, option one, two and three um, in, in, our, in our choices for brand. It's a great name. So, so how did you go about building the, uh, the initial prototype then? What were the steps once you decided on the name and the concept and that you had to build everything yourself? How did you go about getting a yeah. prototype? Yeah, so uh, um, very quickly, uh, Tom and Graham and Yoni uh, were working on, on all of this and, and they are much better product and tech folks than I am. So we kind of divided and conquered. I, I, I was raising money full-time for the first two or three years. Um, and they were uh, having the fun getting to build the prototype, um, and uh, and so we 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 got off the shelf hardware was the first thing we had to do because we didn't have a you know hardware manufacturer yet, so we um, we used a, um, a projective capacitive touch screen that was off the shelf, and we plugged in a a motherboard I think it was a with a Verisite board or a um, was a Verisite board. Uh, or a panda board, or a, I forget the name of it, um, but it was it was just a, it was a little circuit board that had a uh, a processor on it that plugged into it had an HDMI port for plugging into the uh, the touchscreen, and uh, Yoni was able to figure out a way to uh, get the software on it and kind of have the builds and plug it into his uh, laptop, and he wrote software, and our team wrote software. There's another guy, Royce Cho and Hans Woolley, and some uh, some other early uh, developers who wrote software for this tricked up little motherboard that plugged into our screen. And um, Tom was busy um, doing the product spec for the MVP and what we wanted on it. And he was setting up the faux studio in our headquarters. And those were the, the fun early days. It was uh, what you call pulling pulling the thread through on technology. And every time we pulled the thread through and had a little win, it was just, it was really magical time. And they're, they're, they were super fun guys to build a company with. And looking back, um, if we weren't always about to run out of money, it would have been super duper fun. The only stress was no one believed in us and no one was giving us money. Of course. But the, but the project of building the prototype couldn't have been more fun. So, so you talk about that stress and you say you were on the road kind of two or three years raising money. What, what was the difficulty? Sure. Why, why, why didn't people get the idea? Why didn't they want to back it? Yeah, one of the biggest things, and we still have this challenge, Joe, some, so many people still don't get this. We hear this, we'll, we'll have this, this type of question come up on the earnings calls still today, eight years later, it is, is what is the total addressable market for a yeah. $2,000 stationary bike? 
And a lot of these uh, now, I, I'm critical of them in my mind, of somewhat uncreative investors would sit there and say, show me a report that says there's a market for a $2,000 stationary bike. Show me the, the, the data that tells me that there's, there's a market here. Yeah. And I would say, well, the, the product doesn't exist. This is a new category. You know, you, you, know, you, you can't say eight years ago you couldn't show a a research report that would say, you know, what's the market for a thousand dollar phone? Yeah. There was no market eight years ago. And now the market is a trillion dollars. Right. But similarly, uh, no one could see, uh, and there was nothing to show them because there was no uh, research and there was no, um, nobody knew about this category of product mm. because you didn't want a $2,000 stationary bike because stationary bikes were terrible because you stared at a wall and you tried to motivate yourself and you didn't motivate yourself and you'd get off and there was no community, there was no connection, there was no content, there was no software, there was no music, there was no interactivity, there was none of that stuff that made it fun to get on the bike. None of it existed. So nobody wanted to spend $2,000 on a stationary bike. Yeah. But it was kind of merging, but people were willing to pay $30 a class to go somewhere to get this experience. So I was trying to marry that idea. I was like, guys, don't, don't think about the stationary bike world. Stationary bike world is terrible. Nobody wants a stationary bike. But people want the content. They want the experience. So think about instead of spending $30 a class, you're going to over time spend $2 a class. So it's, you know, one-fifteenth the price. Yeah. And it's better. The instructors are better. The location's better. The community's bigger. The, the software is more engaging. It's a better product than you're paying $30 to travel. And it's at your home. And it's only $2. And, of course, that's a market. Yeah. But most investors, 99.9% .9 of investors, couldn't connect those dots on their own, which was really disappointing, obviously, and wasted years and years of my life trying to convince them yeah. that, that there was a there there. So when all these institutional investors were telling you that maybe there wasn't anything worth investing in, how did you keep your confidence up after rebuttal after rebuttal? How did you, I don't know, not throw in the towel or not decide to pivot to something a lot simpler? What were you telling yourself? Yeah, Joe. L luckily, I'm a confident person. My parents did a good job of instilling confidence. Um, I don't know why. I don't know how, but they they, uh, they gave me confidence. Um, and the team, um, my co-founders, were incredibly can-do, confident guys on their own. Um, they never wavered. They always believed. Um, and our so our team believed. Our our limited angels, uh, for the most part, believed. Um, and then very quickly, Joe, when we got the product, when we got the prototype into people's hands and they got on it and they put their headphones on and they did a class and there's a bucket of water below the bike after, you know, 45 minutes and they get off and you see in their eyes, they're, 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 you know, there's magic. You, you saw them feel the magic yeah. and it was undeniable. And so the first, you know, 10, 20, 50, 100, 200 people that got on the product and experienced it, they knew. Yeah. So then we said, great, we, we have something, you know, screw the investors. We're going to get this. Uh, we're going to get this done. We believe. And uh, it, it just it, it kept us going is, is the, the confidence of the team and the early read from the consumers. And what, what were those first prototypes like? Were they what you expected when you got them? back from the, the factories yeah uh there were there, there was um no there were <laughs> problems with the early prototypes um but you could see solving the problems um we okay. were confident enough as you know that's what uh, entrepreneurs largely do is they solve problems every day and yeah. so um despite the the challenges and the and the hiccups um and looking back those hiccups made it fun and challenging and rewarding and um, but there, there were hiccups every day, uh, for sure. And you launched a, a Kickstarter early on, which back then was the thing to do. Now maybe seems like a throwback. How did that go? Yeah, it's funny, Joe, you're absolutely right. There was a, there was a year or two in time when everything, the world was, the world was on Kickstarter. Yeah. Um, and it felt like everything was going to come out of the, out of Kickstarter and um, all products moving forward to be launched on Kickstarter. 
Um, I think Peloton was probably the last major product to come out on Kickstarter. But uh, it was generally, I would consider a failure on Kickstarter. Uh, you know, if, if, if 200 people bought um, or, or you don't really buy, you, you, you contribute and then you commit, you're, there's a commitment to give you a product. So it's not really an e-commerce transaction, but uh, directionally 200 people bought the, the bike on Kickstarter. I would say a hundred of them were our angel investors. Yeah. I mean, it, it was um, the people who want, you know, and then another 50 were my relatives or Tom Cortez's mom or something. Yeah. It was, um, it, it was, you know, the, the 50 people that, uh, that were native or in the wild, as it were, actual yeah. people that didn't have a relationship with the team um, bought the bikes. And actually I know some of them, I think Mick Moons, uh, who founded Kiva systems was one of them. Uh, but there, there were, uh, there were some fun early people that believed, but, uh, from a fundraising perspective, it was an abysmal failure. Um, okay. <laughs> but I do think from a marketing perspective, it, it largely got us on the map. Um, at least, you know, for some, for, for that, the people that were paying attention, people, it was, it was a launch moment, that um that put us uh at least got our story out there minimally and then that all right now now for the hard yards of building the sales and marketing organization which at that point we hadn't started but after the failure on kickstarter it was okay now let's figure out how to how to get this thing to market so it sounds like your physical sales were much much more important were you out there in in the early stores buy the bikes yourself, trying to get people on them to ride them. What was your kind of your patter, your sales pitch at the start? Yeah, it was, uh, annoyingly Joe, uh, half of the, the pitch for those first few months was, uh, trying to convince them that the company was going to be around. It was educating them on what this new category of product does, what, what it is, where's the content going to come from? How does it work? What's the pricing? Who are the people behind this company? Okay, this is a minimally capitalized startup. If I give you all this money and three months from now you guys go bankrupt, what happens to my bike? Um, There was a lot of risk buying a bike in those first couple months. And um, in a fun way, the people that were willing to take that risk are some of the most evangelical people yeah, of, of Peloton because they because they were along for the ride and and I've become friends with you know dozens of them because they they were similarly um, similar risk takers and similarly loved the space and uh, really got behind us and uh, and have become friends. It's really fun. So what what were you telling people then? Aside from we're going to be around, I promise you. How did you make them feel like it was better than getting a Soul Cycle or something similar? Yeah, we didn't. That, that's, that was the beauty of the stores, to be honest, Joe. Uh, if you got somebody on the bike and mm-hmm. put the headphones on and had start, had them start pedaling and, you know, Jen Sherman or uh, uh, Robin Arzone or a, uh, I think Cody and Hannah were on the platform at that point as well. You, you, um, or Jess, uh, Jess King, um, you would click them into one of these classes and they would see, wow, okay, this instructor is better than the instructor I've been going to. Yeah. Um, the music's fantastic. Uh, the, the bike is, is better built than any bike I've ever been to in any spin studio. Um, and so if you, if you were a consumer, a a connoisseur of the category, you knew that this was better. You said, okay, this is going to be in my home. I don't have to leave this instructor, uh, based on what I've seen, these few instructors, they're better. And they're, I can tell they're committed to bringing me more and more great content, which we've delivered on. Um, so the bike largely sold itself right. once you experienced, and so that was why we we decided to go headlong into retail. And, and at this point, we have I think right around 100 stores yeah. globally, including uh, I think seven in the UK, Joe, and and now six or seven in Germany as well. Uh, but we wanted to allow, you know, especially as we enter new markets like the UK. Um, we know that this is a fantastic platform, both the bike and the tread now. Mm. And uh, we we believe so strongly in it. We we don't want people to look at look at it on the internet and believe us. Although largely the majority of our sales now are, are via our website, yeah. because people now know that it's a quality product. But in the early days of uh, in the U.S. and in the early days of the U.K., we wanted people to be able to experience it. And uh, so retail has really helped because it does sell itself. Once you experience it, you want it. And you alluded to a, li- a little bit there the um, the instructors because that's really where 
you need the best in the world. How did you convince people who were probably quite gainfully employed in traditional establishments to jump ship and come over to a to a, an upstart? Yeah, uh, largely it wasn't hard to convince uh, the people, the early instructors, uh, because they they heard about it and they shared our vision. Yeah, um, and they are. Uh, Again, the beautiful thing about startups and one reason why I love going to work in the morning is the type of people I get to work with. And they are adventurous, risk-taking, um, confident, um, you know, some, they have vision as well. They, they um, you know, back to my frustration with uh, some of the early investors who didn't have vision, have vision people who join Peloton ha- share our vision and uh, and have their own vision. And so a lot of the instructors, it clicked with them. Um, you know, Jen Sherman and Robin and uh, Cody and Hannah and Jess King, I think are the five earliest. Um, and they, they came, they met the team, they saw the platform and it clicked right away. And they said, I, I, I'm on board. And, and we were very fortunate to have that type of, um, I mean, looking back at how great all five of them are and, and then very quickly others, um, it was really an embarrassment of riches that they, that they shared our vision because uh, they are some of the best, if not the best instructors in the world. One of the things that strikes me about spinning, and I have friends who are real kind of spin connoisseurs, is that more than any other type of exercise, it seems to tap into some kind of emotional or, or, or psyche part of them. I can't think of another type of exercise that does it. But they, when people speak about it, they almost speak like they've just come back from a kind of high impact therapy session. Why, why is it the spinning seems to, to tap into people's emotions so much? Yeah, that's a good question. Well, uh, when you're consuming media uh, in a heightened state of endorphins, when yeah. your blood is pumping, um, you know, uh, someone once told me that uh, you don't want your body and your mind to be disjointed. And uh, when you're on a treadmill and you're watching the news, your body and, and your mind aren't congruous they're not they're not yeah. working together you're kind of trying to distract yourself from the from the experience of, of getting your workout when those things come together and the content you're consuming and what your body's doing are together it, it kind of unlocks you know a, a, an engagement that is super intense and super special and the way that you're listening to this music with your endorphins and your headphones on and the way that you're um, engaging with this instructor and, and hearing what he or she is is, is bringing you and the, and the messages and the motivation, mm-hmm. it's super intense. And so you're absolutely right. It's it's uh, It can be therapy. It can be religious. It yeah. can be um, uh, – it is a very powerful experience. Um it's also a little bit like being in a club, you know, when you're, when you're in your twenties and you're at, at one o'clock in the morning and you're dancing and the, and the crescendo hits on a, uh, on a song and it's very powerful. Um, when you can get that every morning and that same crescendo that really hits you. And then the words of these motivating people hit you and they challenge you and they make you question how ambitious you're being in your career and your relationships. And, you know, it, it, it really is, um, it is a powerful thing and, and it, it's part fitness it's part boutique fitness but certainly peloton does it as well as anybody and and to the extent you can do it anytime you want by pressing a button and clipping in it's it's fantastic another trend i suppose is that fitness has got a lot cooler than it used to be you think about athleisure brands like lululemon and kind of nutrition brands and all sorts of things even gym brands make themselves a lot sleeker than your kind of planet fitness or or the equivalent and you guys have definitely been a part of that but w- when did that change start happening and why has has getting sweaty become cool i suppose it's a great question uh and uh, that was another frustration uh when i was when i was raising money is the category had been so dopey for so long with unelevated brands and terrible marketing and terrible products and um you know it, it was not a awesome category uh, for you for decades. Um, I mean, it was late night infomercials of I lost 30 pounds in 30 days thanks to the belly burner, ab burner. And it's like just really, you know, it's an insulting, yeah. you know, insulting marketing and um, unelevated creative and brands and, and advertising. Um, and so uh, that was that was headwind for me when when to your point, Joe, I was like, no, that's the opportunity. If you bring an elevated brand, 
um, and uh, great design and great creative and great technology and great software, you know, we can own this. We can own fitness because there's nothing happening in this category that's that's awesome. Um, and so uh, we've been we've been having a good time. And, and again, the people that join Peloton see that we can be a very special uh, brand and, and, you know, movement almost um, in in fitness. Uh, and we're, we're definitely just getting started. So here's the million dollar question. then: what, what are the dopey sectors right now, to use your word, that could be elevated in, in the next five, 10 years? Where should we put our money? You may not want to answer that. You might keep it yourself. <laughs> <laughs> if uh, if I had time, I would go into a, a home products, uh, think furniture or rugs. or yeah. There are some categories that are off the radar of hardcore technologists that um, I think you could bring technology to and uh, direct consumer and uh, innovative supply chain and do some, I, 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 I wish I had more time in the day because there, there are some other categories that I would like to, uh, to bring more awesome experiences to the consumer. But uh, unfortunately, yeah. I've got my hands full of Peloton. Quite right. I want to ask you because it seems like the Peloton story has been one of, as you say, grit and determination and a lot of setbacks along the way. Um, and to get to where you are now, uh, maybe 10 years ago, it seemed kind of impossible. How do you think you cope with stress? Are you good? Do you sleep well, for example? Or are you, are you just a very confident person, I wonder? I wake up in the middle of the night like like everybody with uh, with worries. And, and there's been times um, in Peloton where it, it was dark. I mean, really dark. Uh, and so, you, you know... I think I deal with stress as well as anybody, but uh, but that doesn't mean I, I don't get really stressed sometimes. And of course, uh, in September last year, I think it was, Peloton went public. Why at that moment did you decide that this was this was the move? Yeah, I think it was the right time for us, uh, and I'm and I'm glad we did it. Um, it's definitely made us better. Uh, Jill Woodworth, uh, our CFO, and and her team, Alexandria and Allison and uh, and others uh, have. Um, had to work hard to get us ready. Um, uh, but now that we are public, we have a massive balance sheet. I mean, one of the things it was, it was a financing event for us. We, we raised 1.2 billion and, and now we still have all of that. And then some on our balance sheet. Um, so we are well capitalized. Uh, we were profitable last quarter, uh, which, um, uh, was an important milestone to um, to silence the naysayers who were just uh, um, <laughs> crushing my chi uh, when we went public. But uh, uh, we went public to your question, Joe. At that time, uh, it felt like we were mature enough. We had just uh, we'd already launched our second product, so we had a treadmill in the market, which we wanted to show that we could not that we weren't a stationary bike company that we were going to be uh, uh, digital streaming fitness uh, across several categories. Um, and we've uh, publicly said that we're, we're looking forward to bring more, br bringing more products to the market, which is going to be fun. And we're looking forward to that. Um, but uh, one of the big things is let, uh, one of the reasons why you go public is to let other people invest. Um, and to the extent that a lot of our members are, are true believers in what we're doing, allowing them to, you know, put some of their money into Peloton stock and uh, and share in the upside of what we're what we're going to create in the coming years. That feels good. Um, uh, you know, it, it's uh, there, there's a dynamic. I'm guessing it's global, but certainly in the states where private investors and private equity shops and venture capitalists are able to share in the upside of a lot of these hyper growth companies, but mom and pop investors can't do it because they don't have access to those same vehicles. So going public kind of opens up the access to the returns that we're, that we're going to, uh, that our shareholders are going to see, um, which we're excited to uh, allow that to happen. And you mentioned the naysayers there and Peloton perhaps sometimes unfairly has been attacked by certain corners of the internet. There was an advert last year, of course, uh, which was pilloried a bit for, I don't know what the charge was, whether it was um, sexist or maybe just encouraging people to lose weight over anything else, which kind of missed the point, I think. But is it a case with those that it's no publicity is bad publicity or did that actually hurt you on the balance sheet or even personally? 
Yeah, that's a good question, Joe. Uh, we did a couple postmortems on that, um, and we, could, we, we we couldn't truly decide whether it was good or bad. Right. Um, certainly, if I could wave a wand and and have it had and and it could not have happened, I think we would have chosen for it to not have happened. Yeah. Um, it was it was personally annoying to me because, to your point. Um, I think it was a good spot and there was nothing sexist about it and there was nothing about weight loss in it. Uh, it, it was a little bit, um, the baggage of the category is, is what we could, um, deduce is just people think about fitness equipment as a rote weight loss, mm. uh, you know, category, um, which it's not. And our members know it's not our members, you know, know it's, it's more about mental health and physical health, uh, at this point, especially in a COVID world, um, having access to, to great, um, instructors and the community and great fitness in their homes, um, when they can't leave their homes. Um, it's, it's absolutely as much about mental health as physical health. Um, and so we know that, but, uh, yeah, the blogosphere, uh, Twitter sphere, whatever it was called, um, had a good time taking the piss as you would say in the UK, um, at our, at our expense. Um, so it was annoying, but, uh, I don't think it helped or hurt our business. Um, but it didn't, uh, did make us sharper in our, in our future marketing. And so um, we're looking forward to getting back on air with some really uh, good creative that I think uh, won't have won't have the hair that that one had. We'll go on now to the final section, the quick fire questions about John Great. Foley, the man, not just John Foley, the oh, businessman. So I'd like to know what you think you'd be doing if it if you weren't running Peloton. This could go anywhere with a journeyman like yourself. <laughs> exactly. Um, I would say... Uh, uh, either an architect, uh, I like the left brain, right brain stuff, um, or uh, one of these home design companies that I alluded to that I have some great ideas. I, 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 I weirdly like interior design. Um, and uh, it's a passion of mine, uh, as with architecture. So I think there's opportunities in, in both categories, architecture and interior design that have been underserved by technology. What's your worst habit? I have a whiskey every night. That's probably not awesome, but uh, but back to your, do I sleep well? I do sleep well because I have a whiskey. Uh, and uh, I probably shouldn't crack my knuckles, I'm told. So uh, maybe maybe those two. Okay. I, I don't know if it's a myth, the whole cracking knuckles thing. I crack my knuckles a lot and it feels good. It feels like a relief. <laughs> I think it's okay. It you, you crack on, as we say. What's the most <laughs> impressive thing you can cook, John? Uh, the most impressive thing I can cook and, and the only thing I can cook are probably the same. Right. Uh, it's a, it's a, it's a chicken pot pie that my mom taught me, uh, it's got some neat little crisscross pattern at the top. So it's uh, not only tasty, but it's aesthetically uh, nice, but, um, that might be the extent of what I can okay. cook, to be honest. I'm a new, I'm a New York, I'm a New Yorker. I, I order out a lot. Absolutely. What's been your biggest failure or regret? Um, I have a fun one for this. Uh, uh, when I was running Evite, uh, I was working with some really smart, uh, creative folks, uh, Karina Kogan, Larissa Lee, David Roland, um, Dion Kemp Sanders and Hisao Kushi. And, uh, we had a plan that was to create a networked information, um, website that I think at this point, had we kept doing it could be bigger than Facebook and Google combined, Wow, which is really ridiculous to say, <laughs> but, uh, we uh, we ha we were onto something with a networked information platform, and uh, so um, that was uh, that was a uh, regret that we didn't uh, pursue that. Uh, what are you most proud of on the other side of things? Uh, what am I most proud of? Uh, actually, um, that was my answer for most proud. To be honest, my okay. my my biggest regret, the biggest thing I was most proud of was was that uh, was that what we were working on then. The, my biggest regret, uh, I've got to tell you, Joe, is um, last month I was fishing in the Bahamas and I fought a fish for an hour wow. and it got away. Oh, yeah. And I just really, I can't get it off my mind. I really want that fish back. Yeah. <laughs> Have you read The Old Man in the Sea by Ernest Hemingway? Uh, growing up in the Florida Keys, I probably read that every year for the past. Uh, and my dad grew up in Cuba. So wow. uh, I've read every Hemingway book and... Uh, I recently read, um, not recently, a couple of years ago, I reread Ernest, uh, Old Man in the Sea with, with my son. Yeah. 
Um, but it's a classic for sure. Are you a big fisherman? I am. Yeah, I love fishing for sure. Absolutely. If you could learn one new skill, not fishing, what would it be? I would. Uh, I, I am in. Um, I say in a cheeky sense. I'm. I'm an American. I, I speak one language, um, and I'm definitely not. I'm definitely not proud of that. Um, so I would like to. I would. I would learn a language or or guitar. Um, and I think for a lot of the parents out there who uh, who have their own regrets um, and want to have their kids learn something, I've I've pushed my kids into learning Mandarin, um, wow. and my son plays guitar so i'm uh, i'm trying to make him a better version of what i wish i was <laughs> what was the last piece of advice you gave uh what was the last piece of advice i gave um recently i told somebody uh not to overplay their hand um i think to be intellectually honest and uh um self-aware of where you are and and, and know the bid ask delta and what you're approaching and don't overplay your hand uh, i think is important what phrase would you like to banish from the earth what really irritates you you ever hear people say chillax i think chillax uh, is a pretty, not, uh, not for a long time but i remember it <laughs> <laughs> thank, thank god <laughs> maybe it has been banished maybe our prime minister over here i think this is true david cameron when he was kind of young and cool and hip, he said chillax at one point and was deeply, deeply skewered for it in the press, quite rightfully. I think that's right. But anyway, I have to look it up. It's terrible, even if David Cameron didn't say it. Um, if you could stick to one age, what would what age would you like to be, John? Yeah, so um, 28 is your physical peak, I, I'm, I'm told. Um, right. And it feels directionally right. Uh, and the good thing about 28 is that you're, um, you've worked through your career a little bit. And so you're, you got a little experience, you're hungry, yeah. you're, uh, you're ready to work hard. You're probably pre kids. Um, I, I, I love my age. I'm about to turn 50. So I'm, I'm pretty happy today, but, uh, I, I would go back to 28 from a physical, physical okay. perspective. I could, I could grab the rim back then. Okay, yeah. I want to ask you a tangential question then that's not on our usual list. But there's a lot of people right now, probably, who have just found themselves unemployed, maybe at all sorts of times in their career, but maybe when they're kind of late 20s and weren't expecting to be because of everything that's going on. Now, you obviously found yourself in that situation. What would your advice to them be if you got something to kind of pick their spirits up when they're feeling at their darkest? Yeah, um, I think the key is to find an industry that you like and get your foot in the door. So um, I, I was certainly at a point in my uh, uh, job search that I was willing to take a job that didn't seem like my dream job, yeah. but at a company or in an industry that uh, that was something that I wanted for the long term um, versus taking a, a bigger job in a company or an industry that, that wasn't right. I think you got to have a long-term view on your career, um, would be my advice. Absolutely. What have you done recently for the first time? Um, for the first time, uh, I, I rediscovered sailing, um, oh, cool. recently. Um, and, uh, I, I forgot how relaxing, um, not chillaxing, but <laughs> relaxing, um, uh, <laughs> sailing can be, uh, it's, uh, it's a pretty awesome pastime. What's your most treasured possession in the world? So, uh, so my dad passed last year and he, um, he was a kind of a, uh, he went to the Naval Academy and he was a war hero. Um, wow. and so I have all of his, uh, like a technically a hero. He got all kinds of hero medals. Like, uh, um, uh, and so I have all of his medals and uh, they're pretty cool. I also have his dog tags, but wow. for people like, for people like me who haven't served our country yet, uh, I, I have a great place in my heart for men and women in, in uniform and, and who have served our country. And uh, my dad's medals are, are special to me for all kinds of reasons. Incredible. Which book has influenced you the most, John? Yeah, so there's a uh, an, uh, an author named David McCullough, who is apparently the best storyteller in American history, or, or some accolades like that. But he wrote a book on John Adams mm. um, that was largely through the letters of Abigail Adams, uh, and it was just an it was a tour de force of of writing and uh, 
biography and uh it, there, there's so much richness of inspiration and patriotism and um, love and uh, intrigue and adventure and uh it was it, it captured the american revolution obviously pretty well but um if you haven't read it john adams is is my favorite book amazing what's your personal motto my personal motto also bleeds into Peloton motto is don't let perfect be the enemy of good. Okay. Um, just get, get stuff done every day. Um, and, uh, and if it's not perfect, fix it the next day, but, uh, keep, keep putting points on the board every day. And, and, um, you know, little, little metaphors like, uh, uh, the avalanche starts with a pebble or, uh, a hundred mile or a thousand mile journey starts with one step, all that stuff. But it, but it really, you can get in your way if you let perfect be the enemy of good. You're not going to take that step because you're afraid it's not going to be the perfect step, but you just got to take any step um, and start moving. John, finally, what is your idea of happiness? Big question. (laughs) My idea of happiness is uh, being on a boat uh, with my family and friends. Um, If you you can tell from my dad growing up in Cuba and me growing up in Key Largo, I love being on a boat. There's something good for the soul and uh, good, you know, if there's thousands of years of feng shui that says you being around the water is, is good for you Yeah. and being with your family, uh, being on a boat special because uh, you're with your family, everyone's doing something different. Uh, you're in the water and in, in and out of the water. And uh, generally when you're on the water, you're in some type of magical place on any coast and, and anywhere in the world. And uh it's all more or less the same awesomeness, but uh, it is makes me happy. Amazing. John, thank you very, very much for, for joining us. Joe, it was a true pleasure. I enjoyed connecting. And I hope you catch that fish. <laughs> I do too. Thank you. I'll take a picture and send it if I do. Okay, good, good, good. We'll see you soon. Thanks so much. Thank you, Joe. Well, if you enjoyed that episode of the Gentleman's Journal podcast, you'll almost certainly love the Gentleman's Journal magazine, the world's finest dispatch from the front line of luxury, entrepreneurship and style. In fact, lucky podcast listeners like you now get 20% off our annual subscription. Just enter the code POD20 at thegentlemansjournal.com to find out more.